welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenat in Edinburgh. Joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. The term has started. We've started teaching. Everything's good. Beginning of week two, students are about, and, and, and the weather this morning was awful, but now it's turned sunny, and it's good to be back, be back in the classroom. It is, and so we're having face-to-face -face teaching, and uh, it's the beginning of the academic year, and one of the things we want to do to kind of celebrate back to school is in the next uh, week or two, we're going to talk to some of our PhD students about their own research, but in keeping with the kind of theme, the alleged theme of this podcast, we're also going to try to relate their research or ask them to reflect on some of the contemporary debates that are going on as well. So we're very, very lucky today to have one of a PhD student we both supervise. Yes, he um, is both, I guess, lucky and or burdened by uh, have us as a supervisory team. Yes, yeah, so, so uh, James Mackay and James... Uh, if you need help, signal to the listeners, they'll be able to rescue <laughs> you. <laughs> but so, so we want to spend a few minutes talking to James uh, about his research uh, in, in this episode, which is very, very interesting research, and you're in your final year That's of right. writing up, and so, so uh, well, first of all, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. And tell us a little bit about yourself. What was your background before you came to Edinburgh to study with us? Sure. Well, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Oxford. Uh, in history and Spanish, and then I came to Edinburgh five years ago now, uh, in 2016, um, to the master's specifically in American history, and then I really enjoyed it, I had a great time, and then two years later, uh, after having a year out, uh, I started my PhD in 2018. So, before we talk about the PhD itself, mm -hmm. what made you want to do a PhD? What made you want to pursue postgraduate study in history? I'd always had it um, as something in mind. I had a break of four years um, after my undergraduate degree teaching English as a foreign language, but I always knew that I wanted to come back to academia at some stage. So even when I was applying for the master's degree, um, it was always as a stepping stone um, to, to go on to do the PhD. At least that's what I had in my head. How did you find American history growing up, growing up in England? How did you find American history as a topic? Or just what drew you to it? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty easy question to answer because I study absolutely no American history at school and I was introduced to it as an undergraduate. And in fact, I ended up, well, yeah, almost exclusively studying US history as an undergraduate, which means I'm, yeah, my expertise is mostly US centered. And yeah, this is where I was drawn to the, the masters here. And specifically in American history. And so you all I know. signed up for something as an undergrad on a lark and then... Yeah, why did you choose American now? history as an undergraduate? I, partly out of curiosity, because I hadn't been exposed to it before as a, as a student growing up in England. Um, partly because there weren't an awful lot of course options available to me as an undergraduate, because I was doing a joint on this degree. It was one of the ones that I was able to fit into my timetable. Um, but I never looked back. I started off doing a course, um, kind of survey, the classic survey course from the revolution through to reconstruction. Um, and that, yeah, that set me off and I never looked back. Huh. So uh, if, if I may, who taught you at Oxford? Who taught you US history at Oxford? Oh, there, was, there were a number of, a number of um, academics. I remember Jay Sexton, um, Peter Thompson, Richard Cavadine, uh, yeah. Those are the ones that stand out. For sure. Well, some very fine yeah. scholars, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so and then you, you decided to, you came to Edinburgh to do a master's in U.S. history, and then you came back for the Ph.D. Tell us what your Ph.D. is on. Right, so, yeah, I can give you the, the title. Uh, that's for Well, the, let's start with the, the title. title. <laughs> yeah, the easiest way to, to start off. Yeah, so my dissertation is called What They Call Free in This Country, uh, Refugees from Slavery in, in Revolutionary America. I'm looking at the conflict from 1775 to 1783. So it's tracing the movement, both uh, voluntary and enforced, of self-emancipated and enslaved people throughout the Revolutionary War. So what are your main sources for that? How are you tackling it? Uh, I should probably give a, a sense of the yeah. geographical scope as yeah, well. Although Revolutionary America is in the, in the title, there, it predominantly has a focus on, on the South, um, as well as New York City, considering New York. It's almost a southern city, and that fits into the focus on uh, movement that I have in the project. In terms of sources, um, I don't think I'm using any sources that would be unfamiliar to 
uh, historians of revolutionary America, particularly with the focus on slavery. I'm using lots of newspapers, particularly ones from cities occupied um, by the British during the conflict. Um, the National Archives down at Kew um, have a lot of really relevant sources, um, things like the Board of Police records um, during the occupations of Savannah and Charleston. Um, trying to think of other really important sources. Uh, the Loyalist Claims Commission um, is a really important group of documents for trying to capture black perspective, for trying to capture uh, black voices and foreground those in the project. Um, I've also, before the pandemic, I was fortunate enough to have the chance to do some research at archives in North Carolina and South Carolina, um, at the University of South Carolina, um, University of North Carolina State Archives in North Carolina too. Um, so it's piecing together lots of different sources to try and come up with the whole. So uh, actually, let me, if I can ask a couple of follow-ups, David, if uh, you look like you were about to jump in, but forgive me. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic, so, mm -hmm. so just before we go back to your thesis, how, how has the how has the pandemic affected your PhD research? I mean, it, it, it's disrupted all of our lives in different ways, but I'm, I'm mindful that PhD students, especially here in the UK, they're on a pretty tight time schedule, and the yeah. clock is always ticking, right. and it's been 18 months. So can you just reflect a little bit on that, and then we'll get back to your thesis. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that it's had more of an impact on the, the framing and scope of the project than in terms of limiting... Um, the source base. Sorry, I mentioned earlier on that it has a kind of, it's primarily a, a project focusing on the revolutionary South, and that's been borne out partly due to the pandemic and not being able to, to get to some of the archives. I'd anticipated New York City having a much more prominent role, for example, and I still want to include that in one of my chapters, but it won't have the role that I had foreseen. Um, in terms of the source base, I've been quite fortunate really when I was preparing the proposal back in 2017 uh, I hadn't really appreciated just how much was digitized available online or published so important sources like the newspapers I, ref uh, I was referring to earlier um, like the Royal Georgia Gazette um, the Royal Gazette in in South Carolina for example are available online ancestry.com has lots of the loyalist claims um, available as well. So yeah, I've been relatively fortunate. Um, it hasn't disrupted me too much. That's good to hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. I should, I've always been sort of amazed at how quality, good work people have been able to do during the pandemic despite all the other barriers. Just worry about like, if the pandemic had happened 10 years earlier. Exactly. Would have yeah. had much I do more. think about this from time to time and yeah, it doesn't really bear thinking about it, but <laughs> yeah. How did you get interested in refugees in the first place? What was it that, that drew you to this topic? Yeah, I, if I think back to when I was preparing the proposal, um, I'd initially had a much more of an explicitly military focus and looking at the black military contribution on the British side primarily during the Revolutionary War. But then my feeling was that that ignored a large number of black freedom seekers who are not involved as combatants. So I moved away from a military focus to a focus on refugees because I felt that was a more kind of inclusive perspective on, on the black experience um, during the Revolutionary War. I argued in an undergraduate lecture that I recorded the other day <laughs> for our US history survey that if one is going to look at the experience of um, black people, but particularly enslaved people during the American Revolution, it's definitely a, re it's, it's a regional story, that the story is very different depending on whether you're looking at the north, uh, northern colonies come states, that is every place north of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania to the northward, and southern states and colonies. Right. Would you agree with that view? Yeah, absolutely. And... In the work that I've been doing recently, I've been focusing on, as I mentioned a few moments ago, British occupations of Savannah and Charleston. And I think you can break it down into an even more um, micro kind of perspective level um, in that British policy towards black refugees, towards enslaved people, isn't uniform anywhere, even within the South. 
And I'm going to be arguing that British policy in Savannah, at least pre the occupation of Charleston in 1780, um, has distinctive features that aren't borne out and shown when you look at Charleston even a couple of years later. Um, so I, I think that's right, and it's, it's true even of the revolutionary South as a whole, let alone if you go on to consider the Floridas, um, for example. And Virginia. Exactly, exactly. But if we can't generalize even about the South, so, so I, was, I, I just postulated a kind of two categories, but you're right. suggesting it's more complicated than that, and I, I agree with you. Does that mean we can't reach any meaningful conclusions? I mean, if it's, if it, if it's so localized and so varied, um, where does that leave us? And let me ask you a more specific question. Sure. You can reflect on that, but also, what's the big takeaway? What's your argument in your thesis? The, the overall argument, I, um, I guess, is that it's really important to, to focus on different kinds of movement. Um, and going back to when I was introducing the, the title of the dissertation right at the outset, um, I said I was focusing on both voluntary movement and enforced movement. And I think that some, sometimes it's that category of displacement, of dislocation, um, when we think about movement that we lose sight of. Um, because sometimes we're more drawn to stories of liberation and we're interested in um, black refugees' uh, experiences of freedom, however fragile that was. But yeah, I think it's important to bear in mind um, that most black people are experiencing movement as something that perpetuates uh, their enslavement. So that's going to be something that is going to be a, a key part of my argument in the dissertation. Um, there's lots of scholarship that follows black refugees um, to Nova Scotia, for example, to Sierra Leone, um, to Britain, uh, and that's, that's quite a different story uh, to ones that we find if we look at um, forced um, movement, displacement, dislocation, like I said, at the war's conclusion, what and even the, during the war itself. So I want to return to that question sure. whether we can reach any broader conclusions, but, but uh, just to follow on from your, your main argument, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Can you give any sense for the proportions of, of black refugees both? That is a really difficult number to determine. I wouldn't, I'm not sure I could give you specific figures because they're quite elusive, but there are records from British evacuations, particularly from southern ports like Savannah, like Charleston, where the vast majority um, of, of black people who are being moved or on the move are um, remain in bondage, essentially, um, when they're being forcibly displaced to the Caribbean, for example. Uh, I think we can quite safely say that, yeah, it's the vast majority. And the, the story of freedom is one that affects relatively, relatively few people, or at least in terms of um, black refugees whose freedom um, remains in place at the end of the, the war. Right. So do we know or do you know how many, for example, uh, black refugees went to Nova Scotia and or points beyond? Because, of course, many originally went to Nova Scotia and then went to... Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So the, the, the most detailed records that we have are from the evacuation records um, that the British made. Um, in New Is that the Book of Negroes? That's right. That's right. Um, from New York City um, in the latter part of 1783. And here we're looking at um, black refugees in, in the hundreds, whereas if we're looking at the displacement of, um, of black people who remain enslaved, we're looking at uh, figures in the, in the thousands. So it's that kind of scale um, that's worth bearing in mind before we get drawn to the idea of um, the British um, army as as an uncomplicated liberator. Right, because as you'll know, there's a, certainly a popular perception that the British Army, that Britain represents liberation for uh, enslaved Americans during the American Revolution. So one more question before sure. I hand things over to David. Um, this question about whether we can reach any broader conclusions, and I think you're, you've demonstrated quite persuasively that, of course, the, the local context really matters and that the local responses are different. Uh, so that being the, the case, is it, is it, what do we make of that if one wants to take a broader view of the American Revolution? Wow, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's a very big question. I would say that, yeah, to, 
at a risk of avoiding the question, this, <laughs> the lo- the local Have you listen to the podcast. Yeah. That's all the-, <laughs> the, lo- the local histories matter, and this the stories of what happens um, within places like Savannah, like Charleston, that until relatively recently have been quite neglected in the scholarship. I think I think you could argue that. Um, are really important. And just to go back to kind of the big claims that I'm hoping to make in the, the dissertation, I have the, the word refugee or refugees in, in the title uh, of my project. Um, so one of the claims that I'm going to be making, one of the arguments I'm going to be making, is that black refugees are forging um, a refugee status um, on the ground that's quite different to the policies and proclamations that British commanders are enacting, often from outside the South, but then they have important ramifications within the South. So looking at this um, kind of bottom-up, um, on-the-ground kind of perspective is, is really important because there, are, there isn't a uniform British policy um, and that allows um, black freedom seekers to, to take advantage of chaos um, in the revolutionary South um, to exploit the, what Vincent Brown kind of, um, has called the fissures in a landscape of planter power, I think, um, to create a refugee status that doesn't exist at the outset of the conflict. And how long does that does that status persist? Does it does does this persist as a kind of um, collective memory, collective action? Does this does this like does this um, uh, yeah? If if they create this separate refugee status. Or they forge a particular, or they invest being refugees with a certain meaning. Does that transmit over time after the revolution? Yeah, I, th- I think you could argue that. That would be really important. I think if you were going to move away from the revolutionary South and look at histories of um, the black presence in Nova Scotia, for example, um, I think when we're looking at conflicts, military conflicts, um, enslaved societies as well. This kind of collective memory uh, amongst enslaved communities is really important if we project forward to the War of 1812 uh, and conceptions of what um, the British presence means in that kind of conflict. One of the... Um, or some of the scholarship that I've been drawing on in my own project uh, on the Revolutionary War is applying methodologies and perspectives from the American Civil War uh, and seeing if they're helpful and useful uh, for historians of the Revolutionary War. Um, and I think oftentimes they are. It sometimes might distort the, um, the role and the, the kind of self-conception of the British Army during the Revolutionary War. It's not the Union Army during the American Civil War mm. and it's not even the British Army during the War of 1812. But there are important lessons, I think, that historians can take by trying to think creatively about parallels between these these conflicts. Well, as as uh, we happen to have a Civil War historian sitting right here, as yeah. it happens. So, uh, David, I, I hand things over to you. And oh, okay. well, you I want to ask I, a yeah, question? Because you, you mentioned British proclamations earlier. Right. And one of the you know people thinking about your first year about your topic uh-huh. probably the, if they know anything about black refugees and the revolution, they probably know about. Dunmore's proclamation. Yeah. Do you want to remind people who don't know Dunmore's proclamation what it was? And I know there's been a debate about how we should interpret Dunmore, and, and I was wondering what you thought about him. Is he a agent of, of liberation? Is he doing what? Like, what exactly is his motivation? And then I guess we'll follow up on that afterwards. I give you four questions already. So. Yeah. Right. So Dunmore's proclamation is issued in Virginia by Lord Dunmore, who's the the last royal. Governor of Virginia is issued in November 1775. I think, well, we can go on to this debate maybe in a few moments, but uh, it's often seen uh, interpreted as a wartime expedient on the part of Dunmore um, from a position of weakness. Uh, it offers freedom to enslaved people and also indentured servants uh, who will resort, to use the language of the time, to the British lines uh, and support Dunmore in upholding, maintaining royal authority. In, in Those Virginia. who flee from rebel masters. Not That's from... correct. That's the important caveat. It doesn't 
ostensibly apply to enslaved people who are fleeing from enslavers who remain loyal to the crown. There is evidence that enslaved people do flee from loyalist enslavers, uh, and sometimes it results in their freedom. Um, Some more kinds of things happen. So yeah, they're on the ground, the reality is messier than these kind of uh, distinctions that are made in the proclamation itself. Um, yeah, sorry, that's, that's probably an answer to at least one of your questions. Yeah, so questions. Honest, yeah. You know, well, how do you interpret Dunmore's motivations? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really important question. I think, as I said, it, it's best viewed as a wartime expedient, at least on in Dunmore's uh, conceptions of it. Again, it's issued from a, a point of extreme weakness when British and all loyalist forces have almost no presence on land. Um, they have to uh, flee themselves um, to vessels and shipping mm-hmm. in the Chesapeake. So that's, that's the important context. The flip side of that is how enslaved people uh, interpret the proclamation. And recent scholarship has brought more into focus how Dunmore's actions themselves are motivated by enslaved people, self-emancipated people fleeing to him in the months um, before November 75. And are other British officers doing similar kinds of things? Do they, what do they learn from Dunmore? Um, are there things to do or things to not do? Right. I mean, that, that's a really important question because like you say, that's the proclamation that's kind of first and foremost um, in people's minds when we talk about this topic. Um, another really important proclamation um, especially in, the term, in the terms of the way it's reworked, is Henry Clinton's Phillipsburg Proclamation, which is, is issued early in 1779. In fact, when Clinton is in New York. So it's issued in quite a different context. Um, and it's issued in response to the Patriot forces um, being perceived as um, incorporating uh, an African, African-American presence within their, their own lines. So that's an important caveat as well with the Phillipsburg Proclamation. Again, that's really reworked by enslaved people, self-emancipated people themselves. Um, and if you look at, uh, Frank alluded earlier to the, the Book of Negroes, um, the important evacuation records from New York, it's one of the, the proclamations that's cited uh, in the freedom certificates the British commanders are issuing to black refugees. Interestingly as well, um, other proclamations issued by uh, William Howe uh, appear in the Book of Negroes records, um, which don't ostensibly mention um, offering freedom or refuge to uh, enslaved people at all, but they're reworked and re-envisioned um, by the, the flight of black refugees to British lines. So how, how do the Patriots then respond to all this? If the, the British army is a not quite an army of liberation, but also isn't quite not, not an army of liberation, um, how do the Patriots respond to that? Yeah, that's a really important question as well. And I think going back to the, the focus on movement that I was outlining at the beginning of our conversation, Patriots are very aware. Uh, I know there's evidence and abundant evidence in the primary sources that enslaved people will try and flee in response to these proclamations. And even whether they don't essentially officially apply to wherever British uh, forces present themselves. So there's evidence in um, several of the, the colonies of states that I'm looking at in my project where uh, revolutionary patriot um, legislatures or governments um, put in place plans to forcibly displace uh, enslaved communities on, on a large scale. They don't always enact it because it's not possible in times of war. Um, and in any case, it would present opportunities for enslaved people to flee themselves. But on a, on a more kind of personal individual basis, there's, again, significant evidence of um, patriots, whether they're involved in a military effort or not, forcibly displacing enslaved communities out of the path of British mm. forces. And what's life like for these black refugees when they get to, to British lines? Yeah that's, yeah, that's another important part of my dissertation. Um, so there's a line, I think, in Sylvia Fry's book, Water from the Rock, that the liberator, we could use liberators in inverted commas, air quotes, um, often seemed um, 
like the enslaver. I'm paraphrasing poorly, but that's that's the sense. Um, for black refugees who resort, who come uh, to British lines, when British forces are inclined to receive them, uh, when they have or when they have no choice but to receive them because of the extent of the flight, they're often incorporated or their labor is appropriated and, and then incorporated into the British war effort. Uh, that's particularly important um, in the occupations of Savannah, Charleston. Um, they're a central part of my dissertation. Their precise status is difficult to determine. Um, some recent scholarship has said that they're kind of placed in their kind of category of status of ward um, of the British Army. Um, some of them receive freedom papers, freedom passes uh, as a result of their service. Um, some of them receive wages, which is important for trying to explain how black refugees survive uh, the occupation and, and the revolution, or the Revolutionary War. Um, but they're doing work um, really physically demanding work, needless to say, so, um, so that the British Army can um, make its soldiers, its regular troops, available for, uh, for military combat, essentially. So what kind of work are they doing? Are they doing, are they in support of the army? What are the, what are the tasks that they're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. The most comprehensive um, documentation of the, of the, the roles assigned to black refugees um, is in the Royal Gazette that's published in, in Charleston during the British occupation. And I think it's um, in the early part of 1781, the British published quite extensive lists of black refugees who've, um, who've fled, come into British lines from across, uh, across the low country. Um, which again gives you a sense of kind of geographic uh, um, sense of yeah, where people are fleeing from, from across the white country. But lots of um, black refugees are working uh, in the engineering department. Uh, I'm trying to think of other categories of labor that are assigned to black refugees. Obviously engineering is really important, uh, particularly in Savannah in the context of the French Patriot siege um, of the town in, in the autumn of 1779. Um, they're working in hospitals, they're working as nurses, um, working in the quartermaster general's department. They're assigned to all kinds of labor, again, designed to free um, troops from this kind of more labor that's uh, perceived as being more onerous uh, and freeing troops for, for combat. I mean, just listening to you talk about that, it just reminds me that it sounds very, very similar to the mm -hmm. kinds of work that, that black refugees are doing in the Civil War, especially in 1861, 1862. Right. And it's in almost the exact same locations, right? Yeah. The same spaces. And so it's a, there's a bit interesting echo there. Yeah. Yeah, particularly if we're talking about kind of collective memories as well. We should make clear yeah. to our listeners who don't read military history and 18th, 18th century military history with detail engineering doesn't mean they're working with protractors and, and, uh, and compasses and things. They're digging ditches and digging trenches and doing. Cutting down trees. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Building defenses at the direction of military. Thank you for that translation. For well, you. yeah. <laughs> you I understood what he meant, but I was like, I, yes, but I realized, thank you. Yeah, so yeah. did I, David. David. <laughs> I, I know you did. That's, that's why I'm applauding. That's um, right. I mean, like, like I said, this is really important. Savannah in the context of the siege is really important. Again, in Charleston, in the context of when the British are the besieges, they're relying on that, that um, direct, uh, the labor of black refugees, um, including the, the pioneer regiments so so if i can follow this actually yeah. so, so if they're doing this work uh during sieges both defending savannah and, and besieging charleston yeah or the british are doing that are they we know this is physically difficult work but are they in danger of being killed in combat while they do this is, is there that kind of danger as well there is and there's there's record of this happening um I'm thinking about other dangers as well that they, they might have encountered. Um, well, but during the siege of Savannah, there's, um, there's primary source documentary evidence of uh, enslaver and enslaved uh, occupying the same homes during the siege, uh, obviously encountering similar but quite different experiences of that, of that kind of uh, conflict. Um, 
but there are also refugee camps that form during the siege where it's um, exclusively um, black uh, communities um, that are forming both before and after the siege. Um, but they draw on these kind of uh, traditions of, of refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking again about kind of parallels between other conflicts, uh, lots of work has been done um, on the smallpox epidemic that afflicts black refugees uh, and these kind of um, scenarios of occupation and, and siege as well. So that's, that's another really important factor to consider. We were talking about numbers earlier and then the number of black refugees that, um, that self-emancipate or are liberated. This is quite hard to determine. Well, the fates of many black refugees are quite hard to determine in part because the, the mortality rate is so high in part because they're, um, they're at the forefront of, of combat or they're, they're put in danger because of their positions um, on the siege works, for example, but also because of um, the disease they're, they're exposed to in these, these kinds of uh, situations. Are, are they, you know, there's a long history, obviously, of enslaved people running away, both before the revolution and after the revolution. Are the people who are running away drawing upon like knowledge they have about how to escape from slavery in, in becoming refugees? Yeah, I think there is, again, substantial evidence to, to say that that's, that's the case. Um, so, one of the um, important parts of my, my project is trying to determine when, where, why um, black refugees flee and, and the concept of marinage again is, mm-hmm. is really important um, in the context of the southern low country. It seems, uh, as far as I can tell from my research so far, that black refugees come to British Lines because they see that as offering potentially uh, a more enduring freedom or more or greater protection, um, at least in the short term, from the kind of daily brutalities of slavery and from the, the war itself um, than the kind of maroon communities, autonomous communities uh, that we see um, both before and after the Revolution War. So I'd argue that that's a significant difference. Um, if, sorry, sorry, James, for ahead. our non-specialist listeners, could you explain what maroon communities are, what marinage is, please? Wow. <laughs> You're giving me some softball, softball well, questions. So, yeah, I think probably, well, I'll, I'll draw on your own definitions as well <laughs> if I uh, make a misstep. But these are communities of self-emancipated people, um, which is self-sustaining. Uh, um, they might have some um interactions um from time to time with um a military force and thinking about examples uh from jamaica um but essentially they want to be left alone and they might come to an agreement or um yeah reach some kind of accord with um military forces um of course there's the important distinction that maybe um, someone else would like to elaborate on between petit and, and grand marinage as well. Um, that might be important to uh, to explain. Um, but essentially, yeah, autonomous, self-sustaining communities uh, of self-emancipated, self-liberated people. Yeah. So I mean, I guess Jamaica, as you mentioned, is the yeah. sort of the big example in the New World of a of a maroon community of a large number of formerly enslaved people who established themselves in the mountains. Where where are the big maroon communities in 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 the Soon to be in the United States? Uh, I'm thinking of work by Tim Lockley. He's looked at um, maroon communities upriver in um, the Savannah River, I'm referring to. Um, and that's particularly prevalent after the Revolutionary War, so it's something that might form a kind of analog mm. to my own project. Yeah. Um, the other, I guess, really big one that develops, I guess, mostly later is the, the Great Dismal Swamp that's right. community, that's which is right. the, probably the biggest in the... In the yeah. So, again, not all of, our, all of our listeners will be familiar with the Savannah River or the Great, Great Dismal, Dismal Swamp. Swamp. So, do, I'll what do the, states are these? Okay, in so the Great Dismal Swamp <laughs> is on the eastern uh, end of Virginia, bordering North Carolina, and extend the swamp extends into both regions. And, of course, the, the, the attraction of a swamp 
whether it's you know on the Savannah River or whether it's uh, you know in in the Carolinas or whether it's in um, you know Louisiana is that swamps are, are seen as, as you know the, you can hide in the swamp pretty well and so there are these communities that, that sort of develop in the swamp uh, some of which last for generations um, and, and are kind of a a way of running away before there's a place to run away to in freedom. There's no, there's no free states to run to in 1776. Right. Um, and so running into the swamp is a, a difficult alternative, but one that some enslaved people choose. So it's an opportunity to present, create free space. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. George Washington tries to get rid of the, the, the runs of company, in fact, to try to clear out the maroon community in the Great Dismal Swamp. Helps dig some canals to try to drain the swamp. Doesn't really work, but uh, you know I think Virginia planters are aware of the enslaved, enslaved the formerly enslaved communities there and are threatened by them, just like they're threatened by you know these the people that James is writing about who are running away to the British. So we want to turn and, and talk about a contemporary debate that has uh, that your work, I think, can um, inform. But before we do that, there are more as a transition to that. I wanna I wanna ask you to reflect a little bit on your use of language because for non-specialists listening to this, so a lot of our listeners are people who are really interested in history and interested in American history, but they may not be professional historians. And so you've used phrases like enslaver, self-emancipation. These might be less familiar to educated uh, to our listeners who are educated readers. Uh, and students of history, but are not necessarily practicing historians. So again, why not use the term runaway instead of refugees? I think a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, general readers and general students of the topic would be more familiar with the term runaway than refugee. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. I would say that the term refugee, particularly in, uh, in relation or in comparison with the term runaway, for example, um, and again, I'm drawing on scholarship, um, such as Amy Merle Taylor's work on um, black refugees during the, the American Civil War. It captures the compelling need, the urgent need for protection. Um, the, the, um, the black people who are the, the focus of my dissertation. I'm trying to avoid using the word refugee to explain why I'm using <laughs> refugee there. Um, that compelling need for protection um, that is found in, in the documentary evidence. So British officers will, for example, will write urgently to their superiors talking about um, the scale of black flight to their lines um, and black refugees, as I alluded to earlier, kind of reinterpreting, reinterpreting, re-envisioning um, proclamations issued by military commanders um, to compel British officers to offer them um, a sanctuary. Um, so I think uh, I think that's one of my most important justifications for using it. Um, likewise, it helps me, I think, to to foreground um, a black perspective across across the the project in a way that runaway might um, foreground uh, an enslavers or slaveholders perspective. That, that I was about to you know, reiterate. I think that's a really good point because I think one of the shifts in language that's happened now we talk about. Slavery as an institution is much of the language that had been used for centuries had, had privileged the perspective of enslavers. That's right. Yeah. You know, and and so if you say someone is a runaway slave, they're running away. What you know, and you're both putting them in a category of property, and and then you are implying that where they belong is on the plantation. They are running away from the plantation, but that's where they should be. That's obviously sort of taking the perspective of. The, the enslaver and the institution as opposed to taking the perspective of the, the person. So I think it's an interesting shift in what's happening with the language. Yeah, and it's, it's really accelerated in, in the past decade, but especially mm. in the past half decade, I think, this debate over language, which goes to a broader debate that's going on among historians, but actually in the broader community, about the American Revolution and its relationship with slavery. I don't know whether, David, you want to introduce this and, and ask, uh, ask James well, to say a few words. So, so uh, I think many listeners know, uh, two years ago, the, the New York Times published the 1619 Project, um, and it really hasn't left the news since it was published a year and a half ago. Uh, it was sort of the brainchild of, of Nicole Hannah-Jones, 
And it was published basically as the New York Times magazine uh, for that, that week, but is really a, a much bigger project. Uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, so it's been lauded, but it's also been criticized on, on by from a number of different perspectives, both academic perspectives and political perspectives. Um, I was curious, first of all, what were your thoughts that were on the 1619 Project, and, and then we'll sort of talk about the debate on it. Yeah, well, I've been following along, uh, needless to say, because it was launched a year into, uh, into my PhD. Um, in a way, I know a lot of the debate has been about 1776, Declaration of Independence. In a way that kind of, well, my project kind of diverts away from that, that focus on the outset and the causes um, of the conflict. Um, to then look forward to the conflict, it's, look ahead to the conflict itself and see what the experiences of black refugees were during during the conflict itself. Um, so this isn't really a, a major part of my um, my dissertation, notwithstanding the, the focus that I have mm-hmm. in, a, in a first chapter where um, I'm looking at black flight around the, the time of Dunmore's Proclamation, but it's not an argument that really forms a central part of my my thesis. I mean, the main thesis of the sixteen nineteen project that runs through the whole thing, mm. and of course, it the sixteen nineteen project is, covers far more than the American Revolution. Is yeah. about centering the black experience as an explanation or as a way to understand American history, both its colonial antecedents and and the development of of uh, American life and, and culture since uh, emancipation as well. So it, it, it's far more wide-ranging than the debate such as it is yeah. on social media yeah. would have us believe. The debates but, are really like on two pages of the 100-page thing, right? And so that's just a couple of sentences that people are angry but, about. But they're angry about the sentences and the two pages that focus on the American Revolution, which is why I think James's expertise mm. is particularly welcome here. And so you kind of politely dodge the question, as it were, and say, your thesis isn't about this. And no, we don't want you to write a thesis about the 1619 Project. But a big part of the argument over the 1619 Project centers on the relationship between um, slavery and particularly the British as liberators mm-hmm. argument, <laughs> and the Declaration of Independence, and particularly that period between November 1775 when Dunmore's proclamation is issued, or Dunmore issues his proclamation, I should say, avoid the passive voice, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the Declaration of Independence. And so you're the expert in the room on Dunmore's proclamation. You've got more expertise in data than I have. So, so I'm probably on a number of topics. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, what, what do you think of all this? I mean, you're watching the debate. We've all been watching the debate. Uh, neither of us has participated, though, and none of us has participated. Well, in the debate. You know, was... well it's, it's very... If you, if, you, if you go on Twitter and search for 1619 Project, you'll get a flavor of this, and it, mm. it's become... So there seem to be two camps on this one. Um, I think they're talking past each other a little bit, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. Well, yeah. It clearly is a very complicated... um, Well, the impact of the proclamation is very, as we alluded to earlier, it's very difficult to to unpack. Um, I think the caveat that you um, introduced um, earlier is a really important one, um, that Donald's offer of freedom, such as it is, uh, applies to uh, enslaved people who are fleeing from enslavers who are loyal to the, to the Patriot cause. I mean, that in itself suggests um, that there's a momentum towards, um, I mean, clearly the declaration hasn't been um, issued yet, um, but that in itself, it, Kind of alludes to the momentum towards independence that's um, motivating um, Dunmore's proclamation, um, but yeah, I think that that's something that's lost sight of um, what the strict terms of the proclamation were. Yeah, I mean, maybe for people who haven't read the 1619 project recently, or and especially read the the passage everyone's talking about, I might as well just sort of yeah, read, into the, read into the the record here for the benefit of the court. Um, so they, 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 
Conveniently left out of our founding mythology is the fact that one of the primary reasons the colonists declare, decide to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. By 1776, Britain had grown deeply conflicted over its role in the barbaric institution that had reshaped Western Hemisphere. In London, there were growing calls to abolish the slave trade. This would have offended the economy of the colonies, both in both the North and the South. The wealth and prominence that allowed Jefferson, at just 33, and other leading founding fathers to believe they could successfully break off from one of the mightiest empires in the world came from the dizzying profits generated by chattel slavery. In other words, we may never have revolted against Britain if the founders had not understood that slavery empowered them to do so. You guys are the revolutionary guys. What do you guys think about that? Uh, well, I, I, I have thoughts, but James, let, I want you to respond first. Well, uh, to go back to the, uh, the kind of takeaway that you asked me about from my dissertation right at the outset of our conversation, I think this is why a, a focus on movement in different forms is really important because it's difficult to cast the British government or the British military um, as uncomplicated liberators um, when you look at um, the fates of um, the majority of black people who are on ships departing from Savannah and Charleston, for example. Um, that doesn't much look like uh, a military that's committed to ending slavery. Now, obviously, the, the context is important because we were jumping in from 1775 to late 17 or mid to late 1782. A lot's happened in the meantime. But I think if, if it were the case um, that the British had designs on ending slavery or more... Um, more of an emancipationist inclination, we would have seen more proclamations um, along the line or along the lines of Dunmore's proclamation issued um, with a more explicit embrace of emancipation rather than emancipation with the caveats that Dunmore introduced. Um, I'm also a bit surprised that the Phillipsburg Proclamation issued by Henry Clinton doesn't feature more in debates. In a way, that's more of an expansive proclamation um, because it doesn't make military service um, a prerequisite for being uh, offered some kind of refuge or sanctuary by British forces. And it does use the word refuge, but um, divorced from this idea of uh, military service. Again, that's issued in quite a different context uh, or is reworked and, and reimagined in, in important ways by black refugees themselves. That's excellent. I mean, I think that's very astute. I think um, with reference to the passage that David just read, one reason Dunmore's proclamation is getting so much attention and being so hotly debated right now is because at least in the very the, the first part of the passage David read, there's a correlation. Uh, there's a, there's an argument that there's a correlation between British anti-slavery efforts, uh, Dunmore being Exhibit A, and the subsequent Declaration of Independence. So the mm -hmm. timing matters here, which is why we've ended up in a very forensic That's debate, right. which is quite interesting. And, and Woody Holton in particular has made some really interesting contributions recently on Twitter, sharing evidence to show just how widespread anger about and fear of Dunmore's proclamation was. And frankly, I've learned a lot from that evidence that he shared. But there's been this kind of real focus on the period from November 75 to July 76 uh, on this. Having said all that, I mean, I've got my own concerns about it. I, I, think, I think that first bit that is less persuasive, I think the, I, I think the 1619 Project's main argument is... Um, very persuasive. I, I to the extent that I, I I don't I don't think historians argue about the centrality of slavery and the history of slavery and its yeah. aftermath in in American history as as a, as a if not the central theme 
to, for understanding American history, as far as the revolution's concerned. And I, so I, and again, I think that 1690 Parchment's done a good job of focusing attention on the degree to which Britain was or was not anti-slavery. What I would offer, and you know this is mm. probably possibly better than me, James, I think it's premised on, and in the that was it was explicitly stated in, in David's uh, the passage that David read. It's premised on an, on an emancipationist British Empire that I just don't find very persuasive in 1775, 1776, mm -hmm. and frankly until the 19th century. Um, it also makes assumptions. Well, uh, to illustrate this, it's very North American focused, very U.S. focused, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't necessarily engage with the wider um, historiography on slavery in the British Empire. And if it were true, oh, sorry, if, if, if that aspect of it were true, that, that fear that, or the belief that Britain um, posed an imminent threat to slavery as an institution, if that were true, you'd think that there were 26 colonies in British North America and the Caribbean, and only 13 of them rebelled. Among those that didn't rebel were colonies that relied and were more deeply engaged with slavery than even the mainland colonies. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Jamaica here. If this were true, you'd think Jamaica would have joined right. the rebellion, and, and it didn't. If we think about the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, the United States votes to abolish the transatlantic slave trade three weeks before Parliament did in 1807, and it took effect on the same day. Uh, now, the, the significance of that is, is a slightly different conversation. But in other words, what, what I think is it, Britain's not nearly as emancipationist as the 1619 Project right. seems to assume. And the patriot response to slavery is more complicated. Having said that, I think the second part that David read mm. is definitely true. We know that the, the uh, capital, both kind of financial, but also kind of in terms of time and everything else, that made the rebellion possible for people like Jefferson and Washington is made possible by slavery. So I think that second bit is yeah. is, is un, un, unquestionably Just true. Just doing a close reading, I think there's a, you know, of, of what she says here, there's a lot of weight on the Britain being deeply conflicted over the role of, of, of the barbaric institution that reshaped the Western Hemisphere. I mean, there were lots of British people in 1776 who said, eh, slavery, maybe not so great. Are they going to do anything about it? Being politically active about it is different than being, you know, conflicted. Uh, One could argue Jefferson's conflicted about slavery in yes, 1776. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. and, 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 and clearly, you know, he didn't do anything at all. But yeah, he found a way to work around it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, um, and, 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 you know, there were, to be sure, calls for abolishing the slave trade from some Quakers that everyone ignored. Um, so, I mean, she's, you know, she's putting a lot of weight on that. But it doesn't invalidate, I mean, historical debate, all three of us engage in historical debate all the time. You can take exception, or you can take issue, right, yes. an exception, to particular elements of, a, of an interpretation, and that doesn't invalidate the entire interpretation. To be sure. And the debate that's emerged over the 1619 project, at least as it's, it's, it's been reduced to caricature on mm. both sides, is kind of unhelpful, frankly, I think. So... You know, and this isn't intended to be a work of scholarship. There are no footnotes attached to the 1619 Project. You know, it's intended to be a, a my, at least my reading of it is supposed to be sort of a, a, an interpretation of American history from a particular lens. You could fight over almost every sentence if you wanted to, because you can fight over almost every sentence of any text. Um, you know, there's a sentence earlier, I reread the whole thing this morning just for the fun. There's a sentence earlier where she talked about the role of, of, African enslaved people uh, and rice cultivation, them introducing rice into the Low Country. There's a huge historiographical debate that you've that multiple books have been written on about whether that black rice hypothesis is true or not. Um, you know the fact that she doesn't engage with that debate doesn't mean that, that like you need to toss out the whole project as you point out um, that there's there's debates about lots of these things. Um, well, and one reason why this particular aspect has got so much attention is because prominent historians, you know, wrote to the New York Times in, in opposition to it, and, and, and there's been a real focus on this particular aspect of the To be sure. And, you know, and not only, it's been a weird coalition of critics. So you've got, you know, the, the Gordon Woods, James McPherson, Sean Lorenz, Victoria Bynum, James Oakes, prominent historians writing criticisms 
sometimes in the New York Times, sometimes in was it the World Socialist Daily or some of the other. Well, they gave uh, video interviews views. to the World Socialist. But you also have conservatives like Tom Cotton uh, introducing a bill last year called the Saving American History Act that would have stopped any funding of uh, of uh, for any school district from the federal government that used this curriculum. And there's a curriculum attached to the 1619 Project. Um, and, and there's obviously been all kinds of attacks of it on the right-wing media as being un-American. I mean, I guess the, 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 the thing that infuriates some people, you know, not necessarily the historians who are quibbling over footnotes but the, and the timing of Dunmore's proclamation is what does that make the revolution mean and therefore what does it make America mean if slavery and defending slavery is one of the things that motivated the revolution in the first place. If the revolution isn't as you know uh, unvarnished good about freedom and liberty, which are the same thing, um, and, you know, and, and defending your rights against tyranny, um, but are instead having these other kinds of motivations as well. But it's, oh, it's a good. Yeah, sorry, David. I'm not. I'm not criticizing you when I say about uh, Samuel Johnson, the great English lexicographer, right? That you know wrote Dictionary of the English Language uh, in the 18th century. Uh, famously asked, "How is it we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the drivers of Negroes?" Which is actually the line that she quotes in the 1619 Project immediately before the passage is read. Right. Okay. <laughs> so my point being. People have been saying this for 240 yeah. years. Yes. Oh, I agree with you. <laughs> and, 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 but, but I think for a certain... And I'm not necessarily talking about that within the historical profession, but in terms of the ways in which some of the public has read this, some of them have a view of the United States as, in a very providential way that this kind of historical analysis of the revolution, whether you agree with the particulars of it or not, is a fundamental attack on who they see the United States is and who they see themselves as and their place in the world. Well, it's not our job to make them feel good about themselves, so, I'm afraid. I mean, it, it, but the thing is, they, they want some, there are people who want their history to make them feel good about themselves. Well, I think that's, that's part of the, the, the friction that all of this has engendered. Maybe. I, yeah, I agree with that. Although I feel in, in the backlash against the backlash, mm. some of the academic critics of the 1619 Project are not necessarily purveyors of a feel-good patriotic American history. Oh, to be sure. Uh, yet they, and they've been cast as, as such, and mm. I think that's unfair to them and their scholarship. Uh, similarly, I don't think Hannah Nicole Jones and people who who have, um, you know, like Woody Holton, mm. who provided some of the evidence to, to amplify this view. And again, I found that evidence quite persuasive and interesting. It, it's causing me to question my own uh, interpretations of, of these events, which is the purpose of the whole, that's the whole point, point right? Yeah. right? Um, you know, have been cast as sort of America-hating communists. Well, that's nonsense, too. Uh, I... History's not about making us feel comfortable. In fact, and, it should make us feel uncomfortable. And, and the, you know, we know, you know, Samuel Johnson reminded us, but there were lots of people at the time reminded us that mm. the American Revolution is a mess, and you can't help but be ambivalent about it. James, you are. If we made you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, 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 if you feel uncomfortable, this is a safe space for you. But but <laughs> uh, but actually, this is a good thing to ask you because David and I are both Americans, as right. you, you may be aware of this. <laughs> <laughs> you are British. I think it's That's safe for me to say that, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. If uh, I, 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 <laughs> and you're studying this. One of the arguments I always make to my undergraduates here is, look, this is, an, this is an episode in British history as well as American history. It might be the foundational moment in, in American history, but it's of passing interest to British history too. Um, or foundational moment in the history of the United States as opposed to American history. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you make of... How did you come, when you came to the study of the American Revolution, particularly with these questions around enslavement and liberty, um, and then the 1619 debate, and I'm using that term advisedly, mm -hmm. uh, has kicked off, what do you make of all this as a non-American, in the sense that presumably you got slightly less invested in this than Senator Tom Cotton and the Save American <laughs> History Act, <laughs> or whatever it's called, yeah, right? So, so did you bring... A better perspective because you're you're at a step removed from this, or do you? How do you respond to all this? David and I will be quiet now. Respond. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I don't think I bring a better perspective. It's just a, a different 
perspective. Um, and certainly, yeah, you've talked about American exceptionalism in the past, right? America's not, what the United States isn't exceptional in having citizens who want history to make them feel good about themselves. So, yeah, and that, that might tie into something we alluded to earlier about the risk of presenting Britain as a kind of proto-pseudo-emancipationist, abolitionist force during the Revolutionary War, which the, which the evidence doesn't bear out. To be sure, uh, some enslaved people are free as a result of their actions and their, um, their interactions, collaborations, uh, the labor that's appropriated from them by British forces. But yeah, there, there isn't, I don't think there's a story to tell of um, Britain as, a, as an emancipationist force. And to just draw on something that I alluded to earlier, where I was talking about drawing on scholarship of the American Civil War and seeing where it's illuminating, sometimes it, it can also be distorting. And the, yeah, the British army in, throughout the Revolutionary War is not um, a post Lincoln Emancipation Proclamation Union Army in, in the Civil War, right? Even if sometimes um, there are quite eerie similarities, as David alluded to earlier in terms of the geographical location, the kind of displacement and movement of enslaved communities. Um, but I think sometimes, yeah, you can stretch that comparison too far and it can be misleading. So, yeah, it's not the story of British heroes either in terms of the British Army there. All right, gentlemen, I think it's time for last drops. James, you are the guest. You get to go first. You get the first, first last drop. Yes. <laughs> sure. Go first. We sure. stretch this metaphor to the... <laughs> yeah, We need some more whiskey. That's what we need. All right, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, so I would like to uh, endorse, recommend um, a book by Karen Cook-Bell, uh, which was published in the last few months called Running from Bondage. Um, it's a study that looks at uh, enslaved and, and freedom-seeking women's experiences um, during the Revolutionary War. So it's going to be a really important part, or really important work um, for me to engage with as part of my, my own project, my own dissertation. Um, so that's, that's something that I'll be looking at uh, or engaging further with in the, in the coming months. Great. Cool. A very good book. Frank, what you got? I've got, again, proving how we misuse this term. I have two last drops. One is I want to congratulate Mary Beth Norton, who won the 2021 Washington Book Prize uh, for her book on 1774, uh, which is a very fine book and, in fact, informs the debate mm. we've just been talking about because it's a really close study of the year 17, the long 1774, extending into the spring of 1775. And the outbreak of the War of Independence, a very fine book. And, and uh, so congratulations to Mary Beth Norton for winning that prize. But I also am very happy. I've, I've just uh, got a copy of a new book published by Harvard, uh, Belknap Press at Harvard University Press, um, called Washington at the Plow, The Founding Farmer and the Question of Slavery. Uh, it's written by Bruce Ragsdale, who's a uh, very fine historian, who's, who's done a lot of work at Mount Vernon. But and it, it's a study of... Washington as a farmer and, and, and a planter, uh, and Bruce makes the argument that Washington, you know, we think of him as a, as a politician and a soldier and everything else. The role he had the longest in his life was as a planter come farmer, depending on how you want to use that or, phrase. Or enslaver. Come or enslaver, farmer. and the book deals with his yeah. use of enslaved labor in, and his desire to move, to rid himself of enslaved labor mm -hmm. uh, in his agriculture. So it's a, it's a, and it, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but what I've read, it's really, really great. What about you, David? Uh, I want to recommend an article from Indian Country Today. It's about the work of Denise Lajmodir, uh, who is a scholar trying to chronicle, she's one of several people on, uh, on several projects, but the one that this, the article is about, trying to chronicle uh, boarding schools that Native Americans were sent to uh, in the late 19th and, and throughout the 20th century. Um, you know, I think there's been some stories that people may have heard in the news of, of some uh, graveyards found on some of these former schools uh, and the repatriation of, of, of bodies of, of children who were forcibly taken from their families to send to these schools. Um, 
And I think it's a, a, a story that we're learning more and more about, uh, both in, in Canada and the United States, about how really terrible these schools were and, um, and trying to chronicle and document them. She's found more than 400 schools, um, and, and I think even every day they're trying to sort of locate more of these uh, institutions and try to sort of make sense of them. So I wanted to highlight her work. Uh, and she also used to be a colleague of, my, colleague of mine at North Dakota State University. So Excellent. Yes. Have the office next to mine. Great. Great. Cheers, right. gentlemen. Cheers, boys. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.